Hello, welcome to Science Friction. I'm Natasha Mitchell with, ah, look, blimey, this is a saga for you today that sounds just too bizarre to be true. At the heart of this story is a young ornithologist, a bird scientist, a zoologist, right? But then he's co-opted by the Nazis to lead an expedition to Tibet in search of clues for this delusional origin story of the Aryan race. It sounds like fiction, and my guest is a novelist, but the people, the places, the point in history and the events you'll hear about are all real. Well, it was in particular Himmler who set up an, a separate department called the Ananelba, or the Ancestral Heritage Department, which is kind of a crackpot organisation that was very much involved with pseudoscience and the occult, and Himmler was very engaged with all of that. And, and Himmler was really Hitler's chief operator. Yeah, he was head of the SS, and he, was, he saw himself as a scientist. Did he? Yes. That's Heinrich Himmler one of the most powerful men in the Nazi regime responsible for the Holocaust. And this is Dr Leah Kaminsky, who's a Melbourne-based GP, an award-winning novelist and the daughter of a Holocaust survivor. Her mother was the sole survivor of her family at Auschwitz. Leah's joining me as part of our occasional novel science series on science fiction, and her new novel is called The Hollow Bones. Our conversation starts with Himmler, and look, be warned, this gets very weird very fast. He played with all sorts of things like homeopathy and herbal cures. I think there was a herb garden outside Dachau at one stage where he was experimenting with naturopathy. He, he had very eclectic broad, strange interests. And one of them was this notion of about world ice theory. In German, it's Welteisler, which actually displaced real science in the platform of the Third Reich. So the theory of relativity was discounted. Einstein was outed, and we know he fled to America. Even the atom was not considered the building block of the universe. The ice crystal became the building block of the universe. Yeah. The ice crystal, I can't make sense of it either. But this idea came to serve the Nazi agenda all too perfectly and offered really an antithesis to the foundational work in quantum physics and atomic theory of Jewish scientists like Einstein. And this story follows the repercussions of that because if the universe is made of ice, well, of course, the moon's made of ice, that's why it's white, all the Stars in the sky are not true stars, they're reflections of glaciers on Earth. The only true star is our sun. And ancient icy moons, years, many years ago, thousands of years ago, crashed into Earth, the area of the Himalayas. You with me here? This is, there was a cult following in Germany for this notion. It's a bit of a flat Earth theory, but everybody accepted it. And it didn't end there. It got weirder still, because everything gets weirder when we're talking about the Nazis and their irrationality. And so the icy moon crashed into the Himalayas, dislodging the city of Atlantis, which was under the Himalayas. Okay, so suddenly we've gone from dodgy science to pure mysticism. Atlantis 
was that great lost city first imagined by Plato. His vision was of a, a kind of utopia occupied by citizens, half god, half human, a lush island paradise, a naval power, but one that ultimately came to a cataclysmic end and sunk into the sea. But the idea here, imagined by the Nazis, is that Atlantis gets dislodged again by the icy moon crashing into the earth. And with it, the Zonin mentioned the superior beings, the true origins of the Aryan Nordic warrior race. So it was an origin story for the yeah, human race that absolutely. was tying in with their their Nazi agenda. Mm. And the bloke that invented or discovered this theory, it came to him in a dream. His name was Hans Horbingo. He was a steam train engineer. And he came up with world ice theory. He dreamt that the moon was made of ice and, and the rest is mm, good PR. <laughs> So they thought that somehow their origins as a master race had emerged from Tibet. Precisely. They, it was a bit of expedition fever going on at the time. We have to remember in the 30s and you know, late 20s. So there were, Himmler was sending lots of expeditions, one out to Bolivia, I believe, and there were a number of them going on. There was one planned for Antarctica to look for the city of Atlantis under Antarctica. So, I mean, this... Really, fact was stranger than fiction when I was doing my research and I just became completely... I didn't know whether to laugh or cry when I was reading all these documents. And the contemporary threads of this story, we're seeing lots of fake facts and pseudoscience nowadays. And it really terrified me to think, well, we haven't really moved away that much. And so to the true story of this smart young German scientist and bird lover, Ernst Schaefer, and his recruitment by the Nazis in the 1930s, which Leah bases her novel around. I mean, he was a crack hunter too, and a zoologist, an expert in Tibetan fauna. And he worked with the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia on a couple of previous expeditions. Very young guy, he was 20 at the time. I mean, this is and all so real. This he, is what he did. Absolutely. And, and I've seen the specimens in the basement in the archives and the dioramas at the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia. And one of the other characters in my book is, is a four-month-old panda that he shot in the wilds of the calm forests in Tibet. Um, he was the second white man in the wild. To shoot a panda in the wild, Theodore Roosevelt had brought one back earlier. That must have been incredible, encountering his actual specimens. This was a man who always, he was both a, a lover of birds and animals, but he was a hunter, a he shooter. He cut a swathe through the fauna of Tibet. He was a bit of a famous figure in Germany. He'd written a lot for magazines, he'd written books. And this adventurous spirit, this expedition spirit was really, it captured the, the popular imagination. And I think Himmler was a very wily character and, and wanted to take advantage of that and was very, very keen to have German scientists affiliated with this organisation, the Ananerba, to give it credit and kudos and he got some top he got a lot of crackpots but he also got some top scientists who were willing to overlook the pseudoscientific aspects of it to you know climb the ladder to academia it was the time where jewish scientists were being thrown out of universities on mass and so these men still mainly men um, stepped up to fill the spaces and it was very convenient so himmler cashed in on that
And so the adventurous spirit, Ernst Schaefer, still doing his PhD in Philadelphia on rare Tibetan songbirds, was heralded by Himmler to return to Germany to serve with the SS. Leah Kaminsky climbed deep inside the archives of Nazi science and then used her creative licence as a novelist to tell this story in The Hollow Bones. I am not planning to send you on another hunting mission, though. Well, not exactly. Perhaps a different kind of hunt. Yes, he said, smiling at Ernst. Welt Eisler, Himmler trumpeted, launching into a forceful monologue that commanded Ernst's drifting attention. World Ice Theory is finally receiving the recognition it deserves. You, young man, will travel to Tibet to head into the bowels of the earth where fire and ice went to war and the ancestors of the German Volk emerged triumphant as the Sonnenmenschen, perfect beings as radiant as the sun. Ernst Schaefer might have thought world ice theory was total claptrap and Himmler and his henchmen deluded, but here was this paid opportunity for a young scientist to get back to Tibet to pursue his own scientific interests. So he signed on to Himmler's expedition and Himmler recruited others too. He sent along Bruno Baeger as well, who was a racial anthropologist at the time, and he wanted him to take lots of measurements of the Tibetan people, in particular the aristocracy. You measured the length of the nose, you measured the distance between the eyes, you looked, there were um, hair colour charts, there were eye colour charts, and Baker had eyes the colour of Himmelfarb, which means colour of this blue sky. He even went as far as to measure the length of men's penises and Himmler set a special mission for him because he had heard that the Tibetan women hide gemstones in their vaginas and he obliged Himmler to examine that. There were records of that? Yes. But Bruno Baker's main mission was? To look for traces of the Aryan race so that these these people from Atlantis had inbred with the Tibetans and if he could see traces of that, that would prove the theory. And then that tapped into the whole theory of Lebensraum in Germany where they needed living room for the thousand-year Reich, for the Aryan people. So that would give them permission then, or permission's not quite the word, to take over Tibet as well. And before you think this is all just distant history. The current Dalai Lama was aged three at the time of Ernst Schaefer's expedition to Tibet and the year before had been selected as the reincarnation of the 13th Dalai Lama. Well, the Dalai Lama is still here with us and he's 83. And Bruno Baeger, this anthropologist on the expedition, only died a decade ago in 2009. And it was only in the 70s, I think, that he was accused and found guilty of participating in experiments later on in a concentration camp in Auschwitz, building a museum of 82 skeletons accrued from live prisoners in the concentration camp. And he was very much implicated in that. Bruno was unflinching. Science is the natural order of things, and as such, it must follow the swastika. The lamplight flickered in Bruno's eyes. We have no choice but to answer das Gefühl, the pride of being German, the call of our race. Don't play naive with me, Ernst. Our work is not just about our own selfish interests. Science must take into consideration the important things happening in our time. There are such huge opportunities we cannot ignore. 
Ernst shifted slightly in his chair. He did not like to be challenged by his men, and somehow Bruno always managed to get right under his skin. Science is pure and elegant in itself, not a pony to be ridden around a circus ring. We must be left to our own devices to follow truth, free as birds to fly to dizzying heights. Bruno smirked. <laughs> You're the one who shoots birds down from the sky. You won't shut me up so easily, you hypocrite. You have been courting powerful benefactors your entire career and are finally tasting the rewards. You're not the only one who can quote from your beloved Goethe. Part of a conversation Leah Kaminsky imagines zoologist Ernst Schaefer having with his zealous anthropologist sidekick Bruno Baker. In reality, Ernst Schaefer is known to have carried a copy of Goethe's play Faust with him on his travels. Goethe's character, Faust, is lured away from goodness to sign a pact with the devil, Mephistopheles. So the irony really struck me. I mean, here is the ultimate Faustian figure and his fall from grace. And I wanted to explore this scientist who grew up as a, a you know, nature-loving boy who collected birds and feathers. And I then wanted to follow his trajectory. And where, where did he strike the Faustian bargain where he joined the SS? You know, when science and politics get into bed together, and we see it nowadays, what happens? And where do the actual facts go? What are the scientists prepared to do? What's the moral leanings of scientists and and what happens if you don't tow the party line. Let's meet Hetta and then we'll go on okay. the expedition, which is fascinating. She's a music student and she marries Ernst. They've known each other since children. In her family, there's a secret within mm. their walls. It's mm. been kept behind closed doors. So this is where the fiction comes in. This is where my novelist kind of imagination comes in. And so I've created lots of obstacles for poor Herita. She has a younger sister who was born disabled. This is Marguerite. Yes. Prone to seizures and she's deaf. Yes, she's born with a congenital illness. And she, yes, she is deaf. She, she has epileptic seizures and she can barely walk. She's in a wheelchair. And this was at the time where new laws were being passed about let's say, genetically imperfect people. This is on the back of all the, the eugenics that was that research that was going on, research, inverted commas, in the States and, and also in Australia. So Ma, I've put Marguerite there as the secret, the family secret. It was the time where people were just disappearing, people with severe mental health issues, genetic disabilities, physical problems were being taken away. This is prior to forced euthanasia, but it's just at that sort of grey time. So I've placed Margaret in there as this family secret, the Volts family's secret. They've hidden her away. They've even faked her funeral, such is their fear. Yes. So Ernst knows, has grown up knowing about this as one of Herta's closest friends, and he's been very implicated. So in order to marry an SS officer, which is what Herta and, and Ernst do, you have to go through a very rigorous process. You would have had to look through both family histories back to at least the 1800s. What were and they make, looking for? They were looking for tainted genetics for any sort of Jewish blood, Romani blood, anything that wasn't pure Aryan pure German. They were looking for mental disabilities or, you know, mental health issues, anything that might be hereditary. You had to be pure. And that this was, you know, racial science was, it was hor hor horrifying to read it all. 
they had to go through all of that in order to get married. And not only that, Himmler was very involved in the sexual life of his men. He was very, it was, he considered them a family. And so he gave them strict directives on, you know, you're only allowed to do it twice a week so you don't waste your seed. <laughs> but in order to marry an SS officer, the woman would have to go to a Nazi bride school. Yeah, I, this is the Reich bride schools. I had never heard of them before. I hadn't either. Mm. So you, you, these are real. These were real. And you have yep. your character Hertha going to one yeah, of these. What did you find out about them? The one that she went to was one of the main ones in Berlin, Wannsee, which is also funny enough where the final solution was um, for the extermination of the Jews was uh, drafted. And it was a beautiful mansion which still exists. And the girls, there were about 20 girls, young girls there at a time. You went a couple of months before your marriage. Gertrude Schultz-Klink, who was the head of the Women's Nazi League, ran this one. So I've put her to in there confronting her. But at the heart of this was a strong, a potent sense of women's role in the eugenic agenda. Absolutely. You had to, you, there was a medal that if you, depending on how many children you had, the, the peak was eight children, you got the gold cross for breeding and you were breeding for soldiers to feed the front line. But mothers were considered sacred in the Reich and their job was to increase the population of the German people. And feed Volk, the bloodline. And feed the bloodline, absolutely, with the party line. And your first love had to be Hitler. But Herta's first love was Ernst Schaefer, this young boy she'd grown up with and that she and her disabled sister Marguerite had played alongside. Now he's a scientist, signed on to the SS mission to pursue his passion for science and her sister Marguerite has been taken by the SS as part of their genocidal quest. In Leah's novel, Herta too must succumb to the SS agenda if she's to marry her Ernst and she starts to have misgivings. I couldn't find anything about her until actually the book went off to be typeset and my husband, who's a sort of bit of an amateur genealogist, found her death certificate. It's about the only thing I could really find. So as a novelist, this was a gift to me because I could make her whoever I wanted. For all I know, his first wife, Hertha, was a you know good Nazi, flag-carrying Nazi girl. I don't know. Mm. But I've cast her in the role of his moral conscience in that she's the one that is watching his small steps into that slippery slope and, and his Faustian sort of compromise that he makes and she's calling him on it all the time to the point where it becomes very uncomfortable. For me, I think she was an outgrowth of, you know, what my mother had always taught me and she was a... Uh, she survived Auschwitz and Bergen-Belsen when she was 21, was when the war ended and she had nobody left. And instead of being a really bitter woman, she was a very loving woman. And she said, look, there is no such thing as good and evil, Leah. There's good and evil and the potential for it in all of us. And that, you know, I remember that from a young, young age. So I really wanted to explore, and I think literature is a wonderful way of exploring mm. the nuance and the grey in all of us, like, what would I have done in that situation? If I was Hertha, what would I have done? And that's what I kept asking myself as I wrote this novel. So in 1938, Ernst Schaefer, four other scientists and their entourage set off on their expedition to Tibet. Their gear was emblazoned with the swastika and global news outlets got wind of this Nazi-led mission on its way to Tibet through India. 
What's interesting, in fact, vis-à-vis the swastika is that Ernst Schaeffer is very wily and he used the symbol of the swastika to court the Tibetans because in ancient Tibetan... It's a symbolism, symbol. yeah. It's slightly altered. but So he said, you know, the two swastikas, east and west, joined together and, and courted the aristocracy. They brought... They brought Thousands of presents with them on yaks and mules. This was no tinny expedition. They brought gramophones and cameras and scientific equipment to try and impress the Tibetans so that they could, first of all, get in there because they had to go through India to get there and and through the British and curry favour so that they could stay on in Lhasa once they were allowed there. Yeah, but then the war was the war was brewing, and so Himmler f- um, quickly evacuated them. Uh, three, and they got home to Germany as heroes three weeks before the war broke out. Yeah, but they they brought back a whole stack of bounty, didn't they? Oh, they did not miss what, out on that. What did you find? What did you discover oh, about gosh. that expedition and what they brought back? Well, aside from all the incredibly rare animals and flora and fauna. They collected special seeds, which Himmler wanted to grow to be a sustenance for the spread of the Third Reich in thousands of years. Horses that were going to be stronger genetically for the war front. They brought back lots of Tibetan sacred artefacts, masks, clothing. They brought back sacred books. Taxidermid vulture. I mean, he was taxiderming on the way, wasn't he? He was, yeah. He had the local Sherpas Learning the techniques. Learning the techniques. And, and a lot of what the lower castes that were involved in sky burials of the Tibetan bodies, I don't, I don't want to be too gruesome, but in Tibetan culture, the body... They lay is, out the bodies yes, for the vultures to come. Exactly. And the, and the vulture is, is a, the lamagaya is a, a very holy bird. So he got lamagayas, the, the sacred vultures. He, um, he got skulls, human skulls, which he was forbidden to do. He was actually forbidden to hunt. By the Tibetans, and he he went through so many different devious means to do that. He even used slingshots at one stage, you know, locked up the trunks and snuck everything out of Tibet. But of course, they never they never gleaned any evidence for an Aryan no tribe. Well, they'll say they did, but no. Did they say that they had found any evidence? <sighs> Himmler. There was a lot of um, propaganda around it, but I think. The, all of that PR that was going to be put in place got cut short by the outbreak of war and then this story just faded away with it as did a lot of the, I mean, a lot of the um, specimens that were delivered to the museums were actually full of mould and had to be fumigated and disposed of. So when I came across Panda, four-month-old Panda, I just wept. I just sat down on the floor and wept. I just suddenly realised that Schaefer's story is buried inside Panda. Panda was witness to this. All the animals were witness to what Schaefer had done. The next day, Ernst was woken early again, this time by distant birdsong. The morning was almost windless and the sun a wash of pallor, glowing weakly in the misty horizon. Ribbed clouds formed a flimsy veil across the sky. He had dreamt that the creatures from every hunt he'd ever been on came crawling back to life, hooved, feathered, clawed and tusked, migrating from the shores of death to encircle him. Vines climbed up, entwining his body, trussing his limbs with thick stalks. Insects leapt up from soggy soil, gnawing at his skin. 
He saw himself ooze out from himself, the birds and beasts he had taken from the world feeding hungrily on him. They feasted on the heaviness of his flesh until he merged with grass and dirt. A guttural cry came from his throat as vultures soared above him, crouching on the clifftops as they dropped his solid bones, which plummeted to earth, smashing on the rocks below. A chorus of birds circled in an exhilaration of wings. Curlews, nightingales, arctic terns, plovers, snipes, swifts, as flies feasted on his innards. He saw the fragile membrane that separated him from the animal kingdom. Man was a mirage, a small shadow of a figure walking across a vast desert. Screaming in terror, Ernst was answered by a crested lark that imitated his cries, accompanied by songs of disgust from a wood warbler. One of the vultures stretched its wings, gliding above the scene before sweeping down. Ernst felt its talons sink into him as he closed what was left of his eyes, his heart, his brain. He forced himself to grow a beak, defied the smoothness of his skin to sprout feathers. Raising himself skywards, he escaped towards the south in a migration from man to bird. That's an extraordinary scene. Did I write that? Yeah. <laughs> and where it came from. But there's something about reading that, that almost nature's revenge on this hunter, this scientist, on the backdrop of the Holocaust and all those bodies. Well, yeah, the killing of the animals, is, I go, someone's told me, I didn't realise it when I was writing it, Meredith Kernot said to me, it's, it's really a reflection of, of the killing of human beings, also the, the, you know, the genocide, the massacres but the parallel, you're doing it through the animal world mm. instead of giving the gory details of everything, which I think I can't stand reading really in our own writing. Well, it's there in your own family history mm. that you can mm. only imagine, really. Mm. We really are beasts. All we are on this earth are beasts. And so I, I wanted to merge Ernst the Hunter with Ernst the Hunted and have a kind of a revenge of the animals. It really made me confront also the bloody history of zoology and of science and how in order to preserve animals we've killed them. Ernst maintains, you know, talks to Herta that how else are we going to teach future generations about animals if we don't kill them, bordering them on extinction, really almost wiping them out. Mm. So we had no television in those days. We had no CAT scans. We had no other way of studying animals. And now my daughter's a zoologist and I see the difference in, in how things are. So it's a long-winded way of saying that I just wanted to give voice to the animals. And I say I, I just wanted to read, if I might, just from the end of the book. And this is actually Herta talking to Ernst. My wish was to speak the language of bird and bear, panda and elk, my voice holding the chorus of their cries so that you might hear their pain. Let the thousands of specimens you have pillaged from the safety of the wild and brought to display in domestic parlours and museums around the world be shown for what they are. Their enforced immortality could never take away the beauty of their fragile, fleeting lives. The most powerful language belongs to them. It's the animals who make us human. And, you know, I don't want to draw 
long bows, but a lot of the pseudoscience that's present today in contemporary society, it, it terrifies me even more having read the background and, and, and you know, what was involved in this, in the Third Reich and in, in the war, um, what happened to science and how it was completely bastardised. And I fear for what's happening today. Do you see parallels? Absolutely. Do you see clues? Where? Climate change in particular, you know, the, the denialism, the lack of belief in scientific fact. But that's not science being co-opted by a genocidal quest. No, no, but I think it's not a... Oh, yeah, this is controversial. I don't think it's a long bow. I think it's those small steps that lead us into that slippery slope. And, and we, you know, we have to look at things like eugenics. We have to look at what's happening now. You know, we read the newspapers, what's happening now with... Recently, with genetic manipulation of fetuses, um, I, I'm not saying that progress shouldn't happen, but I think a scientist has to be wary of his creation. Where, what, what is the responsibility of scientists? There is pure science, and there is creation, and there is, you know, what you do in the lab. But are you then responsible for whose hands it gets into, and what the politicians do with that? Leah, thank you so much for joining us on Science Friction. Thank you for having me, Natasha. I'm really thrilled to, to have been able to talk about the book with you. Congratulations. And you can find out what happened to Ernst Schaefer in Leah Kaminsky's new novel, The Hollow Bones. Talk to me about it all on Twitter at Natasha Mitchell. Spread the word far and wide about the pod. Email me from our website. And thank you to Jane Lee and Jules McKenzie. Next show... Oh, well, it's on sex bots. You never know what's around the corner on Science Friction, hey? Ciao.